Wolsey's domestic policy and the church. Wolsey was chief minister for 15 years from 1514 until his fall in 1529. Most historical accounts argue that he achieved very little in terms of domestic policy in this period, largely because his time was dominated by foreign affairs, but also because he was more concerned with preserving his own position and gaining personal wealth. However, there were few complaints at the time about the lack of domestic reforms. Henry also appeared to be satisfied with his chief minister. If not, it is unlikely that he would have survived for so long. It would also be unfair to suggest that Wolsey made no changes while he was in power. His influence was noticeable in a number of areas. And here we will consider his role in legal reforms, financial reforms, social reforms, administration and relations with the nobility. Legal reforms. It is possible to argue that Wolsey attempted to bring greater justice to the English legal system. There were two systems of law operating in England at this time, the common law and the civil law. Common law had been in use since before the Norman Conquest in 1066 and was based on precedent, or what had been done before, while civil law was based on natural justice. There was a growing concern that common law resulted in some unjust verdicts which were won on technicalities and that change was therefore needed. As Lord Chancellor, Wolsey was head of the secular legal system. There is no doubt that he spent a lot of time hearing cases and making public the reasons for his decisions. However, he also used the system for his own benefit and overturned common law decisions, using the law to attack those against whom he had a personal grudge. The most frequently cited case is that of Sir Amyas Paulet, who had Wolsey put in the stocks when Wolsey started as a priest. Wolsey summoned him to appear before him daily and threatened to confiscate his property if he left London without permission. This was a chilling reminder to anyone who crossed him. Wolsey also abandoned cases where his own position was threatened. Recent work has also suggested that many of his actions can be seen as part of a more general vendetta against the nobility and gentry, as they had treated him with contempt. This is seen in his consistent determination to prosecute members of the nobility for breaches of the laws against maintenance and affrays. Despite the Paulet incident, there is evidence that Wolsey did try to advance justice and supported the civil law at the expense of common law. Wolsey ensured that the courts for which he was directly responsible dispensed cheap and impartial justice and were available to the poor and weak, who would stand little chance of gaining justice in common law courts where the ability to pay high legal fees was often required. This was seen most clearly in the use of the Court of Star Chamber, where cases against the powerful were often given an early hearing. The same was true of the Court of Chancery, where Wolsey established a permanent judicial committee to deal with cases brought by the poor. However, he did not carry out any changes that ensured these developments were continued once he had left office, and, as he sometimes used the system to further his own interests rather than bring about justice, his intervention may have caused more harm than good. Financial Reforms 
John Guy has argued that Wolsey brought about significant changes in the financial system, arguing that, in the mainstream of finance, Wolsey made a permanent contribution to government. The reason for this claim is the subsidy, which became the standard parliamentary tax and was seen as a replacement for the old system of fifteenths and tenths. The subsidy required taxpayers to give details of their property and income to local officials, who determined how much they should pay. This brought in far more money than the old system, because it was based on a more realistic valuation of wealth, and was the first time since 1334 that the Crown was raising sums based on accurate assessments. But it was still not enough to finance Henry's wars. The problem of raising money came to a head in the Parliament of 1523. Henry wanted money to finance his campaign in France, and therefore when Parliament was called, Wolsey demanded a subsidy of four shillings in the pound, which would bring in £800,000. This caused an outcry, and although Wolsey eventually got the subsidy, it was not at the rate he demanded, and brought in only £300,000. As a result, in 1525, Wolsey sent out commissioners to collect a non-parliamentary tax, the Amicable Grant, to finance a campaign in France. However, the timing was not good. Two forced loans of 1522-23 had raised £200,000 to fund the war in France, but this was still being repaid to the clergy and laity, and the demand for the Amicable Grant came at a time when the subsidy of 1523 was still being collected. Moreover, Henry's foreign policy had brought little gain, and Wolsey was forced to back down. This did not prevent unrest, and in East Anglia 10,000 men assembled at Lavenham in opposition to demands of the amicable Grant. Henry was forced to intervene and cancel the Grant, claiming he knew nothing about it. But that was unlikely as Wolsey was always careful to consult with the king, and it was Henry's desire to continue the war in France that had caused the demands. Wolsey was made the scapegoat and forced to apologise, but it was the king's prestige that had suffered, although it had made both unpopular with the propertied classes. Wolsey had also tried to increase revenue from crown lands, many of which had been given away as patronage at the start of Henry's reign. Income from them had dropped from £400,000 at the high point of Henry VII's reign to just £25,000. In 1515 an Act of Resumption was passed, and this did succeed in restoring some to the Crown, but again it was insufficient to make up the shortfall in expenditure. Although Wolsey raised over £322,000 in subsidies, £240,000 through clerical taxation, and £260,000 in forced loans, it did not cover the £1.7 million that was spent between 1509 and 1520, mostly on war. Social reforms Wolsey's legal reforms led some historians to argue that he was the champion of the poor, and the same is true of his record in social reform. It was usually the nobility and gentry who gained from enclosure. By attacking the practice, Wolsey was seen as defending the poor, as they were the ones who were often driven off common land. In 1517, Wolsey established an inquiry, 
which identified enclosed land and buildings that had been demolished when land was converted from arable to pasture. It led to legal proceedings in the Court of Chancery against those who had ignored previous laws. Between 1518 and 1529, legal action was taken against 264 landowners, of whom 222 were brought to court and 188 verdicts were reached. Some were forced to rebuild houses they had knocked down, and others to return land to arable farming. However, the impact was small, and in the Parliament of 1523, Wolsey was forced to sacrifice whatever gains he had made, accepting all existing enclosures as part of the agreement for the subsidy. It could be argued that Wolsey had a social conscience and was concerned about the problems caused by social and economic discontent. However, most of his actions were against nobles and the gentry, and might be seen as further evidence of his attack on them, particularly as it was abandoned to secure finance. Even if this was not his aim, it did little to endear him to the nobility and gentry, and would only add to their growing resentment of him. Administration There are two elements of Wolsey's attitude to administration. The first is his relationship with Parliament. Parliament was summoned only twice during Wolsey's time in office, giving credence to the view that he wanted to dispense with it altogether, and contrasts with its use in the period on either side of his period in power, when its role increased. However, Parliament was usually called only in times of war to provide the necessary funds, and this was no different in both 1515 and 1523. Wolsey had every reason to dislike Parliament. Although the 1515 Parliament had been called before Wolsey came to power, it had caused problems over church affairs with the Hoon case and the Standish affair, and it was called in 1523 only because Wolsey was desperate for money to fund the war in France. However, it failed to provide the desired level of subsidy, though the difficulties were unlikely to have been the result of antagonism between Wolsey and the leading members of the country who made up Parliament, but rather because they had seen little benefit from Henry's foreign policy. However, it certainly made Wolsey more reluctant to summon an institution that appeared to cause trouble for the government. The second administrative area to consider is the Privy Chamber. Wolsey introduced the Eltham Ordinances in 1526, which aimed to improve the chaotic finances of Privy Chamber and bring about greater efficiency in the King's household, with many promoted, such as Sir William Compton, who went from being groom of the stool to under-treasurer of the Exchequer. However, closer examination offers a very different interpretation. It appears that the reform was designed to limit the access of others to the king and therefore increase Wolsey's influence and control over government. The number of gentlemen of the bedchamber was reduced from twelve to six, but just as importantly, the more politically active were the ones removed, leaving behind those of little significance. Therefore, the apparent drive for greater efficiency appears to be little more than a cover for Wolsey to increase his control, particularly important at a time when some of his policies, such as the subsidy and amicable grant, had failed. 
Although Wolsey dominated government and patronage, he was concerned about the influence of the king's minions at court who tried to influence policy. And in David Starkey's argument, this was part of the struggle between the council, dominated by Wolsey, and the court, dominated by the king's favourites. Wolsey's background and rise to power were resented by many of the nobles, who considered themselves to be the natural advisers of the king. Also, Wolsey did little to endear himself to them, and often appeared to go out of his way to antagonise them. As soon as he was appointed Lord Chancellor, he began a much closer monitoring of them, and in 1516 announced in Star Chamber that they should not consider themselves above the law. This was reinforced by sending the Earl of Northumberland to the Fleet Prison for contempt of the Council's jurisdiction. Wolsey also appeared to interfere in the marriage arrangements of the nobles, which was also resented. However, the greater clash was with the Duke of Buckingham. Rumours of a noble plot against Wolsey led to Buckingham being told to behave more discreetly, but apparently he failed to do so. He was then summoned to London in 1521 and charged, convicted of treason and executed, giving rise to reports amongst foreign ambassadors that this was the result of murmurings against the Chancellor's doings. However, this view of an antagonistic relationship has been challenged, with some historians arguing that Wolsey was no more hostile to the nobility than the King was. It must be remembered that Wolsey had a great deal of control over patronage, and his household at either York Place or Hampton Court was a magnet for the ambitious seeking promotion. The Earl of Worcester considered Wolsey a friend, and therefore the stronger argument might be that Wolsey offered rewards to those who were willing to work with him, and only when they opposed his plans was the carrot replaced by the stick. Although the nobility deserted him when he fell from power, while he had the king's favour, he was secure, and most nobles accepted his authority. How far was the church in need of reform in the 1520s? The question of the extent to which the church needed reforming in the 1520s is important for two main reasons. First, some historians have argued that the church was in desperate need of reform, and that this was the major reason for the break with Rome, rather than Henry's desire for a divorce from Catherine. Historians such as A.G. Dickens have argued that Henry's decisions were influenced by the strength of anti-clericalism in England that pushed him into the break. Dickens has gone so far as to suggest that the church, during the period 1500-1530, stood poorly equipped to weather the storms of the New Age. It was a grandiose but unseaworthy old ship, its timbers rotted and barnacled, its superstructure riddled by the fire of its enemies, its crew grudging, divided, in some cases mutinous. However, this view has been challenged and largely discredited by historians such as J.J. Scarisbrick and C. Haig, who argue that the church was in no worse a condition than it had been in the past. The state of the church is also important in any analysis of Wolsey, given his position within it, and his opportunity to reform it should, have been re should it have been required. This section will therefore consider the condition of the church on the eve of the break with Rome, which will help you decide whether it was the condition of the church, 
or Henry's desire for a divorce, which ultimately led to the Reformation and Wolsey's role within the church. Traditional accounts of Wolsey and the church have usually depicted him as personifying everything that was wrong with the English church. He was a pluralist, holding more than one office as Archbishop of York and Bishop of Lincoln. Although not a monk, he had himself elected abbot of the rich Abbey of St Albans. He was an absentee as he never visited York until after his fall from power in 1529. Despite his vow of celibacy, he fathered a daughter who was put in a nunnery and a son who was given lucrative church livings. Moreover, he appointed non-resident Italians to bishoprics, paid them a stipend and kept the surplus. Wolsey used the church to fund his great lifestyle. The one position Wolsey was unable to obtain was the Archbishopric of Canterbury, as Warham would not resign. However, Wolsey found another way to reach the top of the clerical ladder. At first, this was through pressurising the Pope to make him a cardinal. Although this was achieved in 1515, it gave him precedence over the Archbishop of Canterbury only on ceremonial occasions. In order to have permanent superiority, he would need a further honour. The Pope had the right to dispatch legates to any part of Christendom to exercise its supreme authority, and in 1518 Wolsey was able to persuade the Pope to appoint him a papal legate to negotiate a truce between European states and organise a crusade against the Turks. Wolsey was able to manipulate this appointment so that initially his powers were extended for a number of years and then confirmed for life. It therefore seems fairly simple to suggest that Wolsey was able to use the church to advance his and his family's position of wealth. However, the reality is not quite as straightforward. One reason the Pope had agreed to Wolsey's lifetime appointment as legate was so that he could undertake a thorough reform of the English church. A major concern of the church was to improve educational standards among the clergy, and in 1519 Wolsey visited over 60 religious houses and cathedral chapters, issuing new constitutions for Augustinian canons. He also planned to found grammar schools, and established a new college at Oxford. He had some success in this sphere. Some 20 small monasteries were dissolved, and their revenues were used to fund Cardinal College, later Christchurch College, at Oxford. However, the scheme for schools was slow to materialise, and by the time of Wolsey's fall, only one school in his hometown of Ipswich had been established. The establishment of a college that was so clearly linked to his name has been used as further evidence of his self-promotion, but the dissolution of small monasteries and the founding of new colleges was part of the reformers' programme, and it would therefore be unfair to simply see Wolsey as a hypocrite. There is also evidence to suggest that just before his fall, there were plans to convert some abbeys into cathedrals and create new dioceses. As with all of Wolsey's career, there is no simple answer.